For the past three Tuesdays, we've been looking at some end times uh, events and tying them to biblical prophecy. But tonight, I wanted to uh, go into a more foundational topic for a little bit as some questions came up, and I realized that um, it would be good to take a, a real deep dive into some of these questions. Tonight, I called it the salvation question. And it centers on what is necessary uh, to be saved. And of course, um, we can start with the book of Acts and the day of Pentecost. Acts chapter 2 verse 36 says, Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus, whom he hath crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now this was Peter on the day of Pentecost, after the experience of the Holy Spirit had just occurred, and he was preaching to the crowd who had heard all of the noise and all of the goings-on, and he started to explain to them that they were not drunk. And he, starting from the beginning, told them about the prophecies, and he ended up this way, verse 37. Now when they heard this, they were pricked in their hearts and said unto Peter and to the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? And that's the question we want to try and answer tonight. What is necessary for salvation? What is the the necessary uh, parts of salvation? And of course, uh, most people already agree that if you don't have his spirit, you're none of him. But one of the issues is whether baptism is a part of the salvation um, picture. And so we're going to look at that and go through the scriptures tonight. Now, before that, of course, we have to look at what the early church actually practiced. That's what we're going to do. And then we're going to examine the doctrine uh, of faith alone, which says that baptism is not a part of salvation. And then we're also going to look at what Jesus commanded. But before that, we need to have some definition of what we mean by salvation. Because, of course, there is salvation for the church. There is salvation for the Old Testament saints. And there is salvation for those who will believe even after the rapture, tribulation saints. But tonight we want to focus, uh, uh, when we say salvation, it's for those in the church. We're not saying that there isn't going to be a, a kind of salvation for Old Testament saints. The Bible clearly lays that out, and in previous uh, Bible studies um, on the harvest, the tree harvest, I've laid out the different groups. But tonight we want to focus on salvation for the church. In other words, the bride of Christ, it's sometimes called. Paul speaks about the rapture of the saints, and Jesus refers to it as those that are in the kingdom of heaven. Because unlike most people's concept, it's only the church that gets to consummate the marriage supper in heaven, but that's not our final destination. We end up back on the new earth. If you read a revelation, that's very clear. It says, I, John, saw the new Jerusalem descending out of heaven, and our tabernacle is going to be on earth. So the kingdom of heaven is only for the uh, consummation, so to speak, symbolically for the church. But all of those, all of those titles refer to the bride of Christ, to rapture saints, and to that group only. 
1 Corinthians 15, 20 says, But now is Christ risen from the dead and become the firstfruits of them that slept. But every man in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, afterwards they that are Christ at his coming. This is part of the lessons I've taught on the three harvests, which are related to the uh, seven feasts of Israel, and where we, we showed how each one of those harvests represents uh, one of these groups. So if you would like to go back and look at that, that will help you understand the difference is when I'm speaking about salvation for the church as opposed to salvation for Old Testament saints or for tribulation believers. So the question, let's return to it. They asked, what shall we do? Well, the early church for sure knew the answer. So let us look at what the early church did. In Luke 24, 36, Jesus speaking to his disciples after the resurrection now, Jesus himself stood in the midst of them and saith unto them, Peace be unto you. And he said unto them, These are the words which I spake unto you while I was yet with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and in the prophets and in the Psalms concerning me. Then opened he their understanding that they might understand the scriptures and said unto them, Thus it behoved, thus it behoved Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name among all nations beginning at Jerusalem. That was a command of Christ, of course. He said it before the crucifixion, and it's recorded in Matthew twenty-eight nineteen, the Great Commission. But the early church knew the answer of what should men do. Again, let me read verse 47, which is also part of the answer that Jesus told them, that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name among all nations beginning at Jerusalem. And of course, let's go back to Acts chapter 2 to look at the fullness of that chapter and what the answer that the early church presented as necessary for salvation. Acts chapter 2, verse 1. And when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled all the house where they were sitting. And there appeared unto them cloven tongues like as of fire, and it sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost and began to speak with other tongues, as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now let's go back to the, to the question, and we will take it scripture verse by verse, and look at the answer that was given uh, by Peter and the early church. After he preached to them and told them uh, about Christ's lineage and how they had crucified uh, the seed of David and how all of this was prophesied, the Bible says in verse 37, Now when they heard this, they were pricked in their hearts and said unto Peter and to the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? That is the salvation question. What shall we do? The answer is very clear. Then Peter said unto them, Repent and be baptized every one of you 
in the name of Jesus Christ. Why? For the remission of sins. And he shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. Then they that gladly received his word were baptized. And the same day they were added unto them about 3,000 souls. Verse 42 is also important. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine with fellowship and in breaking of bread and in prayers. Now let's look at this again. Remember Luke 47 that said that repentance and remission of sin should be preached in his name. The disciples interpreted that in verse 38 this way. Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ. They fulfilled that and they said it is for the remission of sins. They're linking baptism with the remission of sins Fulfilling what Jesus in Luke uh, told them, 2447, told them to do. Let's look at that again, Luke uh, 2447. And that repentance and remissions of sins should be preached in his name. They were fulfilling that command. So we see that that's what happened. Now let's look later on at the next event that was a baptism. Acts chapter 8, verse 12. In this case... It says that Philip went down to Samaria, and verse 12 says, But when they believed, Philip preaching the things concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized. This scripture, this verse is is linking baptism with belief. In other words, that baptism uh, is the result of faith in Christ, both men and women. When Simon himself believed also, And when he was baptized, again, showing that belief was linked to baptism. Now, when the apostles which were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent unto them Peter and John. So when they believed, they were baptized because baptism comes naturally from the belief. Who, when they were come down, prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Ghost. For as yet he was fallen upon none of them, only they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them and they received the Holy Ghost. So we see a progression there. First belief, and then the belief is acted upon in baptism in the name of the Lord. So in the church age... There was the work of the gospel, and it was carried out by men. God did not use angels to preach the gospel. We see this again in Acts 8.26, that the angel of the Lord came unto Philip and saying, Arise and go towards the south unto the way that goeth down from Jerusalem unto Gaza, which is desert. And he arose and went, and behold, a man of Ethiopia, a eunuch of great authority, under Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who had charge of all her treasure and had come to Jerusalem for to worship. In other words, although he wasn't a Jew, he was a proselyte, a a convert to Judaism. And here he is on his way back reading the book of Isaiah and not understanding it. The point was that God sent a man to preach the gospel. Then the Spirit said unto Philip, Go near and join thyself 
to this chariot. And Philip ran thither to him and heard him read the prophet Isaiah and said, Understandest thou what thou readest? Now we're going to be coming back to this event. So just bear in mind the scene that happened here. Here is a man who loved God but did not understand the truth and the, the revelation past what he understood under the law. But he was hungry for truth. And he was reading the scroll of Isaiah and he read about uh, chapter 53 and Jesus' suffering. And he didn't know who it was talking about. He took a man under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to give him revelation. And as they went their way, verse 36, they came onto a certain water. And the eunuch said, see here is water. What doth hinder me? To be baptized. What is the prerequisite for baptism? Otherwise, you're just going down and getting wet. The prerequisite, as we talked about before, was belief. Philip said to him, if thou believest with all thine heart. Now, what is this setting up? What it's saying is that baptism is a result of faith. Baptism is a result and is a work of faith. Thou mayest, if thou believest with all thine heart, thou mayest. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. The condition that Philip set him for allowing him to be baptized was that he believed. What this is telling us is that baptism is not just a work of the flesh. It's not really a work of the flesh. It is a work of faith. It is tied to belief in Jesus Christ. Because verse 35 tells us that. Then Philip opened his mouth and began at the same scripture and preached unto him Jesus. And he then saw the water, understood that baptism was necessary. What doth hinder me? What's stopping me baptized? Well, it's belief. If you just baptize without belief, then it's not a baptism. That's what Philip explained. If thou believest with all thine heart, thou mayest. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus is the son of God. And he commanded the chariot to stand still. And they went down both into the water, both into the water, both Philip and the eunuch. And he baptized him. So in the church age, the work of the gospel is by men, not angels. We see this. In the next um, episode of baptism, in Acts chapter 10, starting at verse 1, there was a certain man in Caesarea called Cornelius, a centurion of the band called the Italian band, a devout man, and one that feared God in, with all his house, which gave much alms to the people and prayed to God always. He was a man of good works, a righteous man. He saw in a vision evidently about the ninth hour of the day an angel of God coming into him and saying unto him, Cornelius. And when he looked on him, he was afraid and said, What is it, Lord? And he said unto him, Thy prayers and thine alms are come up for a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and call for one Simon, whose surname is Peter. The point I'm making here is why did not God cut out Peter and just have the angel tell him what he needed to do? He could have. 
He certainly could have. But the point I'm making is that the work of the gospel in God's plan always comes through man. Here's telling him that he has to go and get this specific man. And he's going to tell him what he has to do. Remember the question, what do we have to do? And now send men to Joppa and call for one Simon whose surname is Peter. He lodgeth with one Simon a tanner whose house is by the seaside. He shall tell thee what thou oughtest to do. Isn't it amazing that God chose to use ordinary men to carry out the gospel message unto salvation? So Peter then comes and fulfills and tells him what he must do. In other words, the answer to the question. Acts 10.33 Immediately therefore I sent to thee, and thou hast well done, thou art come. Now therefore... Are we all here present before God? Now, I've put it in red here. To hear all things that are commanded thee of God. Cornelius knew, because he'd been told, that Peter was going to come and tell him things that he was absolutely going to have to do. Commanded thee of God. And he commanded us to preach unto the people. Verse 42 Paul here now, sorry, Peter here now is answering him. He said, and he commanded us to preach unto the people, which he did in Luke chapter 24, 47, right? That, that, his, that the gospel should be preached in his name, remission of sin. So Peter here is just recounting what Jesus told them directly in Luke. And he commanded us to preach unto the people and to testify that it is he which was ordained of God to be the judge of the quick and the dead. In other words, those living and dead. And to him give all the prophets witness that through his name, not anyone else's name, not a title, but through his name, whosoever believeth in him shall receive remission of sins. Now, the belief predates the remission, and the remission is the actual act of baptism. So now while Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Ghost fell on all of them which heard the word. For they heard them speak with tongues and magnify God. So Peter really had not even really gotten warmed up. He had just started to give the initial explanation when the Holy Ghost fell. Then answered Peter, Can any forbid water that these should not be baptized, which have received the Holy Ghost, as well as we? There's always been a question, were the disciples baptized? Well, here is your answer. Who have, should not be baptized, which have received the Holy Ghost, as well as we? He was saying they had been baptized, and of course they had received the Holy Ghost. Verse 48, And he commanded them, to be baptized in the name of the Lord. Then prayed they him to tarry certain days. Again, this is the early church's answer to the question, what shall we do? Let's look to the next uh, baptism that is recorded in the book of Acts, in Acts 19. And this is, of course, uh, carried out by the Apostle Paul. And what it shows is the importance of the correct baptism. Not any old baptism will fulfill God's command for remittance of sins. 
Acts 19, verse 1. And it came to pass that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul, having passed through the upper coast, came to Ephesus and finding certain disciples, he said unto them, have he received the Holy Ghost since he believed? Remember, it's, it is always tied to faith. And they said unto him, we have not so much as heard whether there be any Holy Ghost. So now Paul is questioning Something's not right here. If they haven't even heard of the Holy Ghost, then how were they baptized? He didn't, he didn't even question whether, uh, uh, baptism was something. He said they, he, they must have been baptized. Unto the, what then were he baptized? And they said, unto John's baptism. Then Paul, then said Paul, John verily or truly baptized with the baptism of repentance, saying unto the people, That they should believe, again, here is the faith part of it, on him which should come after him. That is on Christ Jesus. When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. This shows the importance of the correct baptism in the correct way. And when Paul had laid his hands upon them, the Holy Ghost came on them and they spake with tongues and prophesied. Again, we're going back to the question, what must I do? The last part, saved, is only explicit in Acts 16.30. Acts 16.30 recalls Paul's imprisonment with Silas in the jail. And you know the story at midnight, they sang praises and worshipped God, and there came an earthquake and released everyone's bonds. And of course, the jailer was about to kill himself because his life would be forfeit for those of his prisoners. And then he came down and said, brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? There's that question again. But this time he puts explicitly, be saved. Verse 31, what does Paul say to him? They they said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved in thy house. And they spake unto him the word of the Lord and to all that were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night washed their stripes, and was baptized, he and all his straight way. So again, here we have the sequence. Believed, they were baptized in the name of the Lord. The answer to the question that the early church had was this. When they believed, they were baptized in the name of the Lord. Sometimes they were filled with the Spirit first. Sometimes it came after, but there was always the start with believe. And when they believed... Now, Paul himself was baptized and was recorded as such in in Acts. And in Acts chapter 22, he's recalling uh, his baptism and how it came about. In Acts chapter 22 and verse 12, And one Ananias, a devout man, according to the law, having a good report of all the Jews which dwelt there, came unto me and stood and said unto me, Brother Saul, receive thy sight. And the same hour I looked upon him, and he said, the, the, the God of our fathers hath chosen thee, thou that, should, that thou shouldest know his will. Remember that, that thou should know his will. And see that the just one, and shouldest hear the voice of his mouth. For thou shalt be his witness unto all men of what thou hast seen and heard. And now why tarriest thou? Why are you waiting? Arise and be baptized and wash away thy sins. He is tying baptism 
with a salvation effect of washing away sins. Calling on the name of the Lord. That means the baptism as he was doing it was in the name of Jesus. So we've just looked at a few in the book of Acts of the early church's answer to the question. But sometime in the 16th century during the Reformation, uh, the time of Martin Luther, there became all of these uh, challenges to uh, what was accepted doctrine, some good, but some that uh, went even beyond what the, the truth of the matter is. And this started with the Reformed Church Movement. Um, and, of course, their motto is salvation is grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And it sounds really great. It sounds really good. And its foundation is really based upon Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, which was written by Paul to the Ephesian church, which says, For by grace are we saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Of course, and there are some other scriptures that are used uh, to support the theme. Titus chapter 3, verse 5. He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness. Again, this is Paul. But according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. And then Romans eleven six. But it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. Now, the problem with the interpretation of this is not understanding that Paul is not speaking of works in every single sense. He is speaking of specific works. In fact, this is one of this and a couple other places is the rare um, location where he doesn't specify fully what he is talking about. But we can go there and we can see. So what works is he talking about? Well, the, the, the misunderstanding that people take is that baptism would be a work. So if we have to be baptized, and Paul is saying not of works, then obviously baptism cannot be a, a barrier to salvation. But that's not what Paul is talking about in context in any of these scriptures. He is speaking specifically in a narrow sense, about the works of the law. In most of his other epistles or in any other of his writings, he fully spells out what he means by works. Let's look at that. Romans 9.32. Wherefore, because they sought it, that is righteousness, uh, sought it not by faith, but, it, but as it were by the works of the law. For they stumbled at that stumbling stone. And in Galatians, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by the faith of Jesus Christ. What he's speaking about was the law. He's not speaking about every single work. He's speaking about the works of the law. We have believed in Jesus Christ that we might be justified by the faith of Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. In Galatians 3, 2. This only would I learn of you. Receive ye the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith. Galatians 3, 5. He therefore that ministereth to you the Spirit and worketh miracles among you, doeth he it by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith. 
Galatians 3.10. But as many as are of the works of the law are under a curse. So what I'm trying to show you is that in the majority of scripture, he spells it out fully what he is speaking about in Ephesians 2.8. When he says works, he is referring narrowly to the works of the law. That is what he is referring to. Uh, And we're going to prove that in a little bit here. Romans 3.20 says, Therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall be no flesh be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. And of course, we have no problem with any of what Paul is saying. He is merely uh, uh, expounding the doctrine of grace as opposed to the to the doctrine of the law and salvation through the works of the law. And let's go a little bit deeper as to what that was. What works was he talking about? Well, let's look again. Ephesians 2.8. So, for by the grace ye are saved through faith, and not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works. And I've put in red there, what he's talking about is the works of the law. The proof of it is that he's not talking of works generally, is that the very next verse tells us that we were created for good works. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good, in other words, righteous works. Not the works that are under the law for justification, but God has got works for us to do, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. So verse 8 cannot be speaking generally of all works because verse 10, written by the same Paul, tells us that we are his workmanship created in Christ unto good works. In other words, righteous works commanded by God, which God hath before ordained. So Colossians 2.12, which says we are buried with him by baptism, wherein also we are risen with him through, through the faith, of the operation of God, tells us that baptism then is not a work of the law. And so the, the, the theology that says that if, if you have to have baptism, it's a work of the law, is a misunderstanding of what Paul was talking about. He clearly also wrote Colossians 2.12 where he points out that baptism is actually a work of faith. We are risen with him through the faith of the operation of God. We are buried with him in baptism, wherein also ye are risen with him through faith. So baptism is not a work of the law. He was not speaking of baptism because baptism, as he wrote in Colossians 2.12, is is through the faith of the operation of God who hath raised him from the dead. And verse 10 tells us we were created to do good works, righteous works, works of faith. In other words, Acts chapter 8, 36 to 38. And he went on his way. I'm going to read again the eunuch. Now people say, well, the problem is, the problem is then, how are we going to take that? How are we going to understand that? Well, it, it is a matter of belief that baptism is a matter of faith not of a work of the law. That's why in Acts chapter 8, verse 36, when the uh, eunuch asked, can I be baptized? He said, if you believe. Baptism then is an expression of our faith, not a work of the law. What are the works of the law then? Well, 1 Corinthians 7, 7, 19 explains, and 
gives us all the things that Paul was actually talking about that would not bring salvation. 1 Corinthians 7, 19 says, Circumcision is nothing, and uncircumcision is nothing, but the keeping of the commandments of God. Now my question is, are the keeping of the commandments of God a work of the law or a work of righteousness? Here's another thing that Paul was speaking about. Colossians 2.16, let no man judge you in meat or in drink or in respect of unholy day. That means keeping the Sabbath or any of the feast days or of the new moon. This is what he is speaking about. He is speaking about the works of the law, that we are not justified by the works of the law. Not that we are not been commanded to do good works, righteous works based upon faith. Colossians 2.14 explains it, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances, that is the ceremonial laws that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. Well, one of the big objections to baptism, firstly, of course, people say it's a work. Therefore, uh, if it's a work, then Ephesians 2.8 speaks against it. Well, of course, we've just seen that Paul was speaking about the works of the law. But the next objection to baptism, and this is the one that's going to uh, blow people's mind, is they say, well, if baptism is absolutely necessary for salvation, then it requires a man or a woman in the process of salvation. It, 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 it blocks my direct salvation to God. Now, the, the answer to that is, does it mean I need a man to be saved? And the shocking answer is yes. If we go by scripture, we're going to go by scripture, then the answer is yes. Let's put, put the, the uh, premier scripture that is used for salvation uh, through faith alone, Ephesians 2.8, for by great heart say through faith and not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Okay, so let us really take this apart. The, res- the, the grace of God is free, but the response in this scripture says through faith. For by grace are we saved through faith. Now, how do we get faith? Well, the same person who wrote Ephesians 2.8 also wrote Romans 8 on salvational faith. The response of to God's grace then is faith, that is belief in Jesus. But how do we get that salvational faith? Well, Galatians 3.2 says this, This only would I learn of you, receive ye the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith. And of course the answer is we received it by hearing the word of God. So the answer that I said is yes. The only way we hear the word of God is through the preached word. And that's exactly what Paul, who also wrote Ephesians 2, 8, tells us. In Romans 10, 17, he says, So then faith, which is necessary, cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. In Romans 10, 14, he says then, How then shall they call on him whom they have not believed And how shall they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? So the answer by scripture is, do we need a man involved in salvation? According to scripture, yes. Because Paul also wrote Romans 10, 14, which says, how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach 
except they be sent. Sent by who? By God. So I'm sorry if that upsets you, but in the plan of salvation, God firmly put men. That's why the angel could not preach to Cornelius. That's why God could not give direct revelation to the eunuch. In each case, he had to use a man to proclaim. It had to be a man. God's plan of salvation has always included a man. Let's go to the Old Testament, Ezekiel twenty-two thirty. So I sought for a man among them who would make a wall and in the gap before me on behalf of the land that I should not destroy. But I found no one. God was looking for a man. Romans 5.15 says, But not as the offense, so also is the free gift. For if through the offense of one, many be dead, and that was one man, much more the grace of God and the gift by grace, which is by one man, Jesus Christ hath abounded unto many. Now you're saying, well, that was Jesus. But the Bible tells us that we are now sons of God through the Spirit, and the the, the ministry is passed to us. As I said, no angel could do it. Acts 10.5, now send men to Joppa and call for one Simon, whose surname is Peter. He lodgeth with one Simon Atana, whose house is by the sea. He shall tell you what thou oughtest to do. Salvation and the gospel message comes through the preaching of the word, and that is by a man or a woman. It it doesn't come through magic. It doesn't appear in the earth. So faith comes by hearing, and hearing through the preached word. And even if you say, well, what if someone by themselves come across a Bible? Well, this happened. The eunuch was reading the Bible, and he understood there was something he needed to do. What did God do? He sent a man. This happened also with Paul. Acts 9 verse 17. And Ananias went his way and entered into the house and putting his hands on him said, Brother Saul, the Lord even Jesus hath had appeared unto me in the way that he hath sent me. And of course he was a man. Why did he send him? That thou mightest receive thy sight and be filled with the Holy Ghost. The gospel and salvation is going to be preached through a man. That's just how God has set it up. And immediately there fell from his eyes as it had been scales, and he received sight there and arose and was baptized. So the objection that that baptism then requires a man is not much of an objection because that's how God set it up. Faith comes by hearing. In Ephesians 2.8 it says grace through faith. Well, how are you going to get faith? How are you going to hear about the, the grace of God? Unless... It is preached to you. In every case, God uses men from the beginning for salvation, for a saving purpose. That has been even in the Old Testament. Hebrews 11. By faith, Noah being warned of God of things not seen as yet, moved. Faith will require an action. Prepared an ark to the saving of his house. God gave him grace, but it was his obedience and his moving and acting prepared an ark to the saving of his house. God uses men in his salvation plan by which he condemned the world and became the heir of righteousness, which is by faith. So faith requires an action. God used Abraham. 
And the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham the thing which I do? And Abraham drew near and said, Wilt thou also destroy the righteous with the wicked? God used Abraham, or Abraham was in the, the, the role of an intercessor. God uses men in his salvation. It's, it's, not, uh, it's not anything strange because it's always been that way. God used Joseph. And God sent me before, Genesis 45, 7, sent me before you to preserve you a posterity in the earth and to save your lives. Now we could go through the whole Bible and you'll see that God uses men for deliverance and salvation. God used Moses to deliver and lead Israel out of Egypt. He uses men and women. God used Joshua to win Canaan. He could have done it by himself. For whatever his reasons, God has chosen that salvation, deliverance, comes through men and women. God used Deborah to deliver Israel. God used Samson to deliver Israel. God used Gideon to deliver Israel. God used David to deliver Israel. God uses you and me today. It's not a work of the law. It's a work of faith. 1 Corinthians 1.8 For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. But unto us which are saved, it is the power of God. The preaching of the cross brings salvation because it creates faith. And when faith is responded to, people are baptized and filled. First, 2 Corinthians 5.18 And all things are of God who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ and hath given us, men, women, the ministry of reconciliation. So people who kind of get upset that that means that there's a man in between me and God, I'm sorry. I'm only quoting scripture here. He hath given to us the ministry of reconciliation. Well, what about the thief on the cross? He died after Jesus, after Jesus said it was finished. But the truth is, the promise was before he died. He said, today. They both died the same day. Now, the fact that Jesus died a little bit before him made no difference. The promise of salvation under the law was given to him before Jesus died. He said, today shalt thou be with me in paradise. And it was about the sixth hour and there was darkness over all the earth until the ninth hour. And he goes on to when Jesus had cried with a loud voice, he said, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. And having said thus, he gave up the ghost. So people say, well, the thief on the cross was not baptized. And I would say that he was given salvation because he put faith in Christ before Jesus died. Before Jesus died. Now, let's look at someone else who was a contemporary of Jesus, who Jesus said some interesting things about. When they came to him and told him about John being imprisoned, in Matthew eleven eleven, he says, Verily or truly I say unto you, among them that are born of women, there hath not risen a greater than John the Baptist. Now, here's the revelational, amazing statement. Notwithstanding what Jesus just said, that there was never a greater prophet that had been born, he that is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Now, that's an amazing statement. So it implies quite a few things. Number one, it implies that John 
was not in the kingdom of heaven. Remember now at the beginning I said the kingdom of heaven is related to the bride, the church, the people who go up in the wheat harvest. John never claimed to be. In John 3.29 he said this about himself. He that hath the bride is the bridegroom, speaking of Jesus. But the friend of the bridegroom which standeth and heareth him rejoiceth. Greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. He didn't claim he was in the bride. He claimed to be a friend of the bridegroom. Now Jesus is pointing out something very interesting. He said about John that of, of, of people born of women, of prophets born of women, of men born of women, there has been no one born that is greater. And yet he that is least in the church, in the kingdom. Now what is the difference? What is the difference between John the Baptist and those in the kingdom of heaven? Well, here is the revelational truth. Jesus, again, is implying John the Baptist is not in the kingdom of heaven. He is not in the bride. And, of course, he himself admits and calls himself a friend of the bride. But here is what... The prophecy said about John the Baptist, Luke 1, 15. For he shall be great in the sight of the Lord and shall drink neither wine nor strong drink. In other words, he had, was under the vow of a Nazarite, just like Samson. And he shall be filled with the Holy Ghost, even from his mother's womb. Now that's a big, interesting statement. So what is the difference between John the Baptist and those in the kingdom of heaven? If even the scripture says that he would be filled with the Holy Ghost from his mother's womb. Well, let's, let's try and take a look at that. Let's try and see if we can figure that out. Well, the Bible clearly says he was filled with the Spirit. And some will say, well, but the Spirit was not given. Uh, and I would agree it was not poured out on everybody like the day of Pentecost. But it still says he was filled with the Spirit. And when Mary came, the, the baby jumped. So the spirit that was um, given to John was no different from the spirit that we have today. That because he was specially chosen, because Jesus said he was the greatest, he was, he was at least the greatest of all men born. But we can't go beyond what the scripture says, which says he was filled with the spirit. Of course, the day of Pentecost saints were also filled with the spirit. We're trying to find out why Jesus said they that are in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. What is the one difference. He was called to preach. The church is called to preach. We're to proclaim his second coming. They, he proclaimed his first coming. He preached baptism unto repentance. We preach baptism into Christ unto resurrection. He died under the law. We die by baptism with Christ. Called none greater by the fleshly birth. Called greater than John by the kingdom birth. Shall I tell you what the difference is? I'll let Jesus tell you what the difference is. Why he was not in the kingdom. Jesus answered, Verily, verily, truly, truly, I say unto thee, Except a man be born of water and of the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Really the only difference that I can see between John and the day of Pentecost believers was his baptism. His baptism. Now, he's at the wedding feast, he's a guest, but he was not in the kingdom of heaven group. He was not 
in the rapture. He was not in the rapture. Now, we're told by the faith alone, Christ alone, grace alone, that we are saved totally by just pure belief. But when we actually look at people in the Bible, in fact, let's go to the heroes of faith. They all manifested their faith. Every single one had an action with his faith. It was not pure belief. By faith, what did he do? He actually went. He did a work. He went out into a place which he should have to receive for inheritance. Obeyed. And he went out. That's an action. That's a work. But it's a work of righteousness. Why is it a work of righteousness? Because it's predicated on faith, not on the works of the law. By faith, Joseph, when he died, made mention of the departing of the children of Israel and gave commandment concerning his bones. He told them, you got to move them. Because I know that that land is what's given to us. He believed, and so there was an action. He commanded that his bones not be left in Egypt. By faith, the harlot Rahab perished not with them. Because she believed. And they believed not. And because of that, she took an action. She hid the spies. And it goes on to enumerate all the heroes of faith. And in every single instance... There was an action that manifested their faith. Who through faith did what? Subdued kingdoms. Wrought righteousness. Obtained promises. Stopped the mouths of lions. If I'm going out somewhere and I hear the weather forecast that it's going to rain, if I believe it, I will take an umbrella. If I don't believe it, I'll go out and get wet. It's as simple as that. The problem is people focus on Paul's treaties in in his epistles against the works of the law and totally misunderstand that. And they completely leave out James where he's talking about works of righteousness, works of faith. But James is also part of Scripture. James 2.14, what doth it profit, my brethren, though a man say he hath faith and have not works? Can faith save him? In other words, if I believe the weather forecast and I go out there, I'll get wet unless I do an action. James 2.17, even so, faith, if it hath not works, is dead being alone. Now, Paul and James are not in contradiction. One is talking about the dead works of the law. One is talking about the righteous works that come from faith. Yea, a man may say, Thou hast faith, and I have works. Show me thy faith without thy works, and I will show thee my faith by my works. James 2.20. But will thou know, O vain man, that faith without works is dead? And he gives an example. Was not Abram our father justified by works when he had offered Isaac his son upon the altar? Why? Because he believed the word that through his seed would come a nation. So Paul acknowledges the fact in Romans that it was as if his son died and was resurrected because that's exactly what Abraham believed would happen even if he killed him. But to prove that, he actually did the actions. He obeyed God. 
James 2.24, you see then how that by works a man is justified and not by faith only. We're justified when we obey righteous works that we are commanded by God to do. Likewise also was not Rahab the harlot justified by works when she had received the messengers and sent them out another way? For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without our works is dead also. You have to take all of the the counsel of God. You can't uh, take one part and not interpret it correctly and harmonize it with the rest of Scripture. Let's look at the reasons for baptism. Romans 8.11, But if the spirit of him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you, he that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies by his spirit that dwelleth in you. So we have to have the spirit of God to be able to be made alive. But there is a, an additional thing there. But the spirit cannot quicken, make alive, the new man, if the old man has not died. That is the purpose of death, so that we can have a new body. And that is the purpose of baptism, so that we are buried with him in his death. So even if we have the Holy Spirit, if we have not crucified the old man, then let's see what the scripture says. In 1 Corinthians fifteen twenty nine, Paul makes it clear why we baptize, and that it is a salvation reason. Here he's explaining the purpose of baptism. He says, else what shall they do which are baptized for the dead? Now that word in the Greek for is hyper. And it's where we have like um, a hyper ventilation. And what it really means is with regard to their own death. So what it's really saying, else why, why, do pe- why are people baptized with regard to their own death if the dead rise not at all. Why are they then baptized again for, with regard to the dead? Now verse 30 tells you that it has a salvation effect because he then goes and says, and why stand we in jeopardy every hour? He's saying if this baptism thing is not real, if it doesn't have a salvation effect, then why are we in jeopardy? That's what Paul is really telling us. When you completely rightly divide the word of God, there will be no contradiction. So the seed, which is the word of God, has to be planted in order for it to germinate. We may have the word of God, but if it's not planted, Romans 6, 5 says, For if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, and that's by baptism, we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. The corollary of that is if we have not been planted in the likeness of his death, how can we be in the likeness of his resurrection? Knowing not... That so many of us, as we're baptized into Christ, we're baptized into his death. That's what Paul was speaking about. If, if the dead don't rise again, then we stand in jeopardy. Why did we ba- bother baptizing? That shows that Paul believed that baptism was for a specific salvation reason. Therefore, we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so, we should also walk in newness of life. The point about a seed is the seed has nothing wrong with it, but it needs to be buried in soil for it to grow. 1 Corinthians 15.35, Paul says, But some man will say, How are the dead raised up? And with what body they come? Here's what he says about this. Thou fool! 
Thou which thou sowest is not quickened. In, the, in other words, it's not made alive except it die. And how do we die? The other scripture explained, explained it. We are planted by baptism in Christ. We are symbolized his death. That's how we die. So it's not quickened except it die. That's what Paul is trying to tell us. The seed will not quicken unless it's planted. And we are planted, the scripture said, by baptism. Let's just wrap this up by looking at some of the commands of Christ, which I'm sure you all know. Let's go back to Luke 24, 47. And that repentance and remission of sins, which we now clearly see was linked with baptism in Acts chapter 238, should be preached in his name. And this is a righteous work by faith beginning at Jerusalem. Matthew 28, 19, Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Teaching them to observe, in other words, to obey. And that's what's wrong with that um, faith alone. It's missing this whole thing about obedience. To observe, obey all things whatsoever. No exceptions, I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always. And then this was fulfilled, of course, in Acts 2.38. Then Peter said unto them, this is the answer to the question. They said, what shall we do? It goes without saying, to be saved. And he said, repent and be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins And he shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. The truth is, if baptism is a work of the law, so is preaching. But of course, it's a misunderstanding of what Paul was talking about. He was talking about the works of the law in Ephesians 2.8. And in many of the other scriptures, he was specifically talking about the works, not works of righteousness that are predicated and come upon faith that are commanded by God for us to do. I hope you have been blessed by this lesson. We will uh, maybe go a little bit deeper next week because there is so much more to cover. But I want you to know the truth of God's word, that the answer to the question is what shall we do is found in Acts 2 and 38. Father, we thank you for this time of study, Lord. I pray, Lord God, that the seed will be planted, Lord God, that your word will bring forth a harvest, hallelujah, of revelation, of understanding, of edification. Lord, we ask you to bless us as we are commanded to preach your gospel, Lord, to be the channel for your work of salvation, Lord, that there will be faith that will arise in in the listeners' hearts. We thank you for all that you're doing, and we give you the praise and the glory in Jesus' name.